Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Turquoise Hill Resources Third Quarter 2020 Results Conference Call. At this time, all lines are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. If at any time during this call you need assistance, please press star zero for the operator. This call is being recorded on Monday, November 16, 2020. I will now like to turn the conference over to Roy McDowell, Head of Investor Relations and Communications. Please go ahead. Thank you, Joanna. Good morning. I'm Roy McDowell, Head of Investor Relations and Communications. Welcome to our third quarter 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. On Friday, we released our third quarter 2020 Results Press Release, MD&A, and Financial Statements. These items are available on our website and CDAR. With me on the call are Ulf Prahlman, our CEO, Luke Colton, our CFO, and Joanne Dudley, our COO. This call and presentation includes certain forward-looking statements and information, we refer you to the forward-looking statement section of our MDNA for the three and nine months ended September 30th, 2020. And now I'd like to turn the call over to our Chief Executive Officer, Ulf Prahlman. Thank you, Roy, and good morning to everyone. Thanks for joining us for our third quarter 2020 financial earnings call. It's been the better part of a year now since the COVID-19 pandemic has entered our lives. We note the small number of recent community transmission cases in Mongolia. The government of Mongolia has taken immediate action by implementing an all-out readiness state through to the 1st of December. Oyutolgoi has not recorded any cases, and we continue to work closely with the Mongolian authorities to prioritize the health and safety of all of our employees and the wider community. Presenting with me today are Joanne Dudley uh, and Luke Colton, and both of them, of course, will be available for the Q&A following our presentation. On Friday, we reported our third quarter results and updated the markets on operational performance, progress with the underground development, and Turquoise Hill's liquidity and funding plans. Oyutolgo recorded an all-injury frequency rate of 0.17 for the nine months ending September, and in particular, we commend the Oyotolgo team for recording an outstanding AIFR of 0.03 during the third quarter of 2020. The open pit operations continued uninterrupted through the third quarter, and our forecast copper production for 2020 remains in a range of 140 to 170,000 tons, with our forecast gold production trending towards the higher end of the range of 155 to 180,000 ounces. We now estimate that Turquoise Hill has enough liquidity to meet its requirements into the second quarter of 2022. Our base case incremental funding requirement has decreased from 3.6 to $3 billion. You will also recall that we recently announced an MOU with Rio Tinto on the 10th of September in which Turquoise Hill and Rio Tinto agreed to jointly pursue the reprofiling of Oyutolgoi's existing debt, and furthermore, to seek to secure $500 million of additional debt. In addition, 
and as contemplated in the MOU, Turquoise Hill is actively advancing its examination and evaluation of financing options for Oyutolgoi that could address its incremental funding gap in whole or in part. Such options include additional debt from banks or international financial institutions, an offering of global medium-term notes, and a gold streaming transaction. We expect that details of Turquoise Hill's preferred funding options will be presented to Riotinto for consideration in accordance with the MOU prior to the 31st of December this year. We also expect the definitive estimate before year-end, which will factor in an estimate of the impact of COVID-19. Based on our preliminary review of the definitive estimate, we have brought forward our base case assumption for sustainable first production from February 2023 to October 2022, while our forecast development capital cost remains within the range of $6.6 to $7.1 billion, with a base case of $6.8 billion. Slide 6 showcases both the excellence of the Oyotolgoi team and the contribution gold provides to our C1 cash costs. I mentioned earlier Oyotolgoi's third quarter 2020 AIFR of 0.03, which really is a testament to Oyotolgoi's safety culture and discipline. In the bottom left chart, you'll see Oyotolgoi has had another consecutive quarter of its mill operating above nameplate capacity with throughput in this quarter reflecting the processing of harder, higher gold-grade ore. Optimization work implemented earlier in the year has resulted in accelerated access to higher-grade ore areas of the open pit with an overall positive impact on cash flow. 2020 is on track to be our sixth year in a row of meeting or beating our production guidance. Focusing on our gold production, you can see the positive impact of the third quarter gold production on our C1 cash costs. We expect a strong fourth quarter for gold production. And of course, if commodity prices were to remain at current levels through 2021, and with our 2021 outlook of 500 to 550,000 ounces of gold, we would expect to see a favorable impact on our C1 cash costs and cash flows. With that, let me now hand over the call to Luke Colton, our Chief Financial Officer. Luke? Thanks, Ulf, and good morning, everyone. For those of you following along, if I can get you to please turn to slide seven, and I'll provide a summary of our key financial metrics for the quarter. Revenue increased 26% from Q319, and that was driven primarily by the 13% and 17% increases in average copper and gold prices, and that's together with an increase in copper sales volumes. The increase in revenue contributed to higher cash generated from operating activities, which was also positively impacted by more favorable working capital movements in Q3 2021 compared to Q3 2019. The 28% increase in copper production in Q3 2020 versus Q3 2019 had a positive impact on the unit cost basis for both C1 cash costs and all-in sustaining costs. The period-on-period -period decrease in all-in sustaining costs was more significant 
and the decrease in C1 cash costs. And this was primarily due to the impact of lower open pit sustaining capital expenditure in Q3 2020 versus Q3 2019. If I can get you now to turn to slide eight. Turquoise Hill had 1.3 billion of available liquidity at September 30th, 2020. And we expect this to be sufficient to meet our requirements, including our operation and underground development into Q2 of 2022. Our estimated base case incremental funding requirements, we've reduced it to 3 billion, and that's from 6 billion as reported in our Q2 2020 earnings release. This estimate assumes sustainable first production trending towards the earlier months of our guided range, and that's with a target base case of October 2022. It also incorporates commodity prices as well as assumptions around the impact of COVID-19. Further, we estimate, excuse me, further, the estimate assumes a base case underground development capital cost of 6.8 billion, and it does incorporate principal repayments on the existing project finance debt, as well as interest and similar charges over the assumed period of the funding gap. If we were successful in reprofiling the existing debt, we estimate this would decrease our funding gap by up to 1.4 billion. Of course, our, estimate, our estimates of remaining liquidity and funding gap will continue to be impacted either positively or negatively by various factors, many of which are outside our control. As you would have seen, we recently entered into a non-binding MOU with Rio Tinto, indicating that Turquoise Hill and Rio Tinto will jointly pursue the reprofiling of OT's existing debt and also seek to raise additional debt. Further, the company is actively, actively advancing financing options such as global medium-term notes and gold streaming to minimize its incremental funding requirements. And we are currently on track to present proposals to Rio for their consideration before the end of 2020. Turquoise Hill continues to reprofiling. We continue to prioritize reprofiling as well as additional debt and other funding options ahead of equity. Any of these options, if implemented, would have the effect of reducing the company's incremental funding requirements. Their successful implementation may require us to achieve alignment and agreement with the relevant stakeholders, including Rio Tinto, existing lenders, any potential new lenders, and of course, the government of Mongolia. Well, you will all understand that success could be impacted by market conditions and other factors, and that many Many of these may not be completely within our control. We want you to be confident that we are nonetheless absolutely determined to continue advancing Turquoise Hill's preferred funding strategy. And with that, I will hand over to Joanne, our Chief Operating Officer. Thank you, Luke. If we turn to slide nine, key milestones de risking the underground development continue to be achieved. Despite COVID-19, Project, project, project progress continues to align with the OTTR20 expectations. Based on the preliminary data received for the dependent estimate, we see sustainable first production in October 2020, which is at the early end of the range we disclosed, 
and development capital of $6.8 billion, which is near the middle of the disclosed range. The definitive estimate data is currently under review by TRQ and our panel of technical experts, with our review anticipated to be completed later in Q4. Underground lateral development progress continues broadly in line with the OTTR20 expectations. As anticipated last quarter, equivalent metres have strategically slowed in the third quarter as resources were redeployed to focus on critical underground infrastructure to support production from Panel Zero, in particular, the Underground Materials Handling System 1. Looking forward, we expect to see, subject to our review, blasting of the undercut commence in mid-2021. This is a key milestone towards sustainable first production. Underground drilling and orbity characterisation work is near completion for Panel Zero and the northern area of Panel Two, which will be the next area to be mined. Due to the large size of Panel Two, a decision has been made to consider the area as three mining zones. Drilling, data collection and analysis for the remaining central and southern portions of Panel Two and Panel One is expected to continue through 2021 and into 2022 with significant process on a design review and update for the north and central areas of Panel 2 expected in 2021. Turning our focus to development and infrastructure, please turn to slide 10. Shaft 2 continues to operate normally, with preparation works for thinking of shafts 3 and 4 well advanced, and key highly specialised personnel either in or scheduled to return to Mongolia to commence this work, pending resolution of the recently announced COVID restrictions. Mitigating the impacts of COVID-19 on materials handling infrastructure has been a key focus of the project. And due to the decision to strategically redeploy personnel, we've seen improvements in productivity rates. We've seen an easing of restrictions relating to on-site personnel numbers and although ongoing improvements are expected, the recently announced COVID cases in Mongolia may potentially impact timing of any further relaxations. And this is something we'll need to observe closely. Underground development progress slowed from 5.5 equivalent kilometres in Q1, Q2 to 4.7 equivalent kilometres in Q3 due to the redeployment of resources to support materials handling construction. During the third quarter, we built our in-house exploration team, employing six skilled personnel to add to our Ulaanbaatar-based technical services team. The new team will be supporting work on our existing licences and looking for new opportunities within the South Gobi region. Over the last few years, Turquoise Hills exploration efforts have focused on the 50 to 100 kilometre zone around the mining leases. We currently hold two exploration leases within this zone. We've also started a geophysical survey on one of our leases. The survey will be completed in Q4 and the results will be processed and interpreted over the following month. Our new exploration team are looking to build enduring relationships with our neighbours that demonstrate mutual respect, active partnership and long-term commitment. Now I'll turn the presentation back to Ulf. Yeah, thanks very much, Joanne. So before we wrap up our presentation today, I wanted to just briefly take stock and highlight that as our work advances and our underground production eventually ramps up, 
Well, you talk about progression from a tier one resource to a tier one operating asset becomes more and more evident for everyone to see. Or Utolga is forecast to be the world's fourth largest copper producer when fully ramped up, trailing only Escondida, Grasberg, and Coyoesi. And as Oyotolga continues to capitalize on its scale, significant resource base, and higher grade underground ore, we expect C1 cash costs to decrease to first quartile levels. Quality of this asset, in combination with a continued focus on operational excellence, and an exceptional Mongolian workforce are expected to establish a competitive and profitable producer that is well positioned to perform even during the lowest points in a commodity cycle. Turning to slide 12 and concluding our presentation today, I'll just remind everyone of some of the highlights of the OYO Tolboy technical report, which we released in August, and the consistent track record of operational excellence that Turquoise Hill has demonstrated. We've consistently met our production guidance with best-in-class safety performance, and the ongoing optimization of the open pit continues to enhance our cash flows, which then in turn support our underground development. We estimate Oyutolgo will generate $12.7 billion in net cash flow after tax before financing costs between 2024 and 2030. In addition to our copper production, Oyutolga is, of course, a large producer of gold. Our 2021 to 2030 production forecast anticipates that Oyutolga will average over 370,000 ounces per year, allowing an additional layer of resilience to our operations throughout the commodity cycle. Finally, building upon Luke's comments earlier regarding funding and liquidity, I want to reiterate management's and the special committee's commitment and focus to progress the company's preferred funding strategy. As you've heard from us, we're examining and evaluating several non-equity options, and we're actively engaging with market participants to develop solutions that are in the best interest of the company. We recognize that challenges remain, and there are still a number of important milestones to be met, including the recently announced decision to go to arbitration with Rio Tinto, the ongoing discussions with the government of Mongolia on a number of important items, progressing the development of the power solution for Oyotolgoi, to name but a few. It's obvious for anyone to see that these are formidable issues to be tackled, and that is exactly what we're going to do. We have a clear plan for each one of the tasks ahead, and we're absolutely committed to progressing and executing on each one of them. We do so with commitment, but also in the spirit of cooperation with our key stakeholders, and ultimately, of course, with the best interest of our company, Turquoise Hill, in mind. And we will update the market on progress as and when appropriate. Looking ahead to the rest of our 2020 fiscal year, we are focused on continuing to execute our plans safely and deliver the guidance we have provided to the market. We look forward to finalizing the definitive estimate, which we expect will further help to solidify Turquoise Hill as one of the premier global copper investments. So this concludes our prepared remarks. Let me now turn the call back to the operator for any questions. Operator, back to you, please. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press the star followed by the one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request. 
If you are using a speakerphone, please lift the handset before pressing any keys. Your first question comes from Hayden Barstow at Macquarie. Please go ahead. Good yeah, morning, all. Um, just a, a couple for me to start off with. Just firstly, um, I might get Luke to, to answer the first one if I could. Just on the debt reprofiling discussions, I mean, there's obviously not one single debt facility here. I mean, is there anything specific amongst some of those debt facilities that makes it harder than others to actually just sort out a repayment and a sort of repayment schedule uh, on them? And, and also, you know, obviously that new debt that you're, you're looking at getting the 500 billion, is there any sort of any sort of kinks to that that we need to be aware of. And then just secondly on, um, I mean, operationally, it's all been going really well. I mean, the cost performance for mine continues to do a bit better than, than what I'm assuming, particularly milling rate, milling costs. Just interested to understand what's really driving that. And once you get more underground ore in, does the work index actually go down? So theoretically, mill costs might even fall further. Thanks. Thanks, Ed. Luke, you're happy to take them. Joanne, you're happy to then take the second one? Yes, sure. Luke, maybe you can, yeah. Luke, you're happy to take the first one? I'll do my best, Dolph. Thanks. And thanks, Hayden, for, for the question. So um, when you think about reprofiling, you're right that the current syndicate has uh, different types of lenders, right? We have the IFIs, we have commercial banks, we have different tranches. Um, we have, you know, ECA-type lending as well. So, So, you know, each one of those categories will have slightly different perspectives and, you know, they'll come at, come at it from a slightly different starting position. Uh, from our perspective, we, we do believe all of that can be managed and, you know, we, we definitely look, look forward to the opportunity to, to engage with each one of those different classes of lenders. But we do think, we do think um, you know, all of that can be managed and, and you know, individual Sort of issues issues can be can be worked through and can be managed. So we we do remain we do remain confident in in that respect. Joanne, maybe I I can hand it over to you. Yes, no problem. Thanks, thanks very much, Luke, and thanks, Hayden. Uh, so uh, good questions on on the cost. Certainly, uh, all, uh, I'm sorry, Luke um, outlined quite well. Um, the impact of the general impact on on costs um, on cash costs. Uh, in terms of the next level of detail for the for the milling costs, um, this year we've had um, one shut and not two. Um, there'll be another one. There's another one planned in January, uh, and so that helps the the year's overall um, processing costs. We've also had some good ongoing optimisation projects, including good performance from liners at the moment, um, to reduce costs. So that's an ongoing focus. Um, in terms of the underground, uh, the relative um, throughput rates of the underground ore, it, it certainly is uh, has got a higher throughput rate than the harder material from the southwest pit, but lower than uh, the um, material coming out of the central pit. So it, it's not an exact straight answer there, Hayden, unfortunately. Um, uh, but it certainly uh, will have a, a, a better throughput rate than, than the southwest than the southwest pit. I hope that goes some way to answering your questions. Hey, and Hayden, listen, I forgot I forgot the second part of your first question. So let me let me back up and answer that quickly. In relation to any additional debt, I mean, obviously, any additional supplemental senior debt, we will be 
looking to progress those discussions as we progress discussions with uh, the lenders around the reprofiling. And you know we'll we'll have additional additional conversations with with other lenders. Um, you know, should that be necessary or advisable? Um, but of course, on top of that, we we as TRQ are absolutely focused on other forms of debt or hybrid financing as well. Um, so we have been doing a lot of work around uh, a global medium-term note program, and those. Um, all that work is progressing well into timeline. In addition to that, we've had good discussions and, um, you know, good kickoffs with the streamers. So we are looking at a streaming transaction. Again, the work there is progressing very well and is well supported um, and is tracking the timeline. So I think you probably would have seen in recent press releases that we are looking to provide uh, proposals to Rio Tinto for their consideration before the end of this year, and we are still on track to be able to do that. Apologies, that was an important part of your question that I didn't fully answer. No, all good. So, so and all this debt, the, the new 500 and the existing 4.4, is that all going to be equally ranked in terms of credit, or is there going to be a bit of an order in terms of how this debt gets ranked? So um, all of that is is still under discussion and, and, and subject to negotiation, Hayden. So I can't get too far into the detail there. Um, ultimately, we want to get well, ultimately where we want want to get to is a place where where um, all of the different stakeholders feel comfortable bringing in, you know, additional supplemental senior debt. You would expect the supplemental senior to, debt to to be a, a sort of first ranking security. That's probably going to be the case for bonds as well. Um, you know, the rest of it. You rest the rest of it. There's there's different ways that you can look at it, right? Obviously, and all of that's still subject to negotiation. Um, and you know, we'll just continue to work with uh, you know the banks, the streamers, stakeholders, et cetera, to come to the right answer. On, you know, the, the right answer there. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Thank you. The next question comes from Dalton Barreto at Canaccord. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks, guys. Good morning. Um, Ulf, can you help me understand the context around this arbitration and, you know, why you've elected to go to arbitration so soon after announcing a memorandum of understanding? And then as a follow-up to that, can you remind us under what conditions Rio can call an event of default? Thanks, Dalton. Um, so why why arbitrate, right? Um, I would, let me say the following. I'll caveat that by saying that the, uh, the arbitration proceedings are uh, under strict confidentiality provisions, but what we can say is, is the following, Dalton. Our founding plan, as, as Luke, mentioned is really to avoid a you know potentially highly dilutive rights offering and to finance through additional debt right likely likely bonds and streaming it's become apparent in our um, discussions with rio tinto that really their approach to financing is is not compatible with our preferred funding approach and that there is a difference 
of opinion between the parties as to you know their respective rights and obligations with respect to the financing process and really the objective of the arbitration is is to clarify the provisions of the relevant agreements and we've got plenty of them concerning you know Rio Tinto's role and its obligations to support TRQ in in, in seeking additional financing for OT. And we think that you know, additional clarity provided by um, the arbitration process will ultimately um, benefit both parties. And to be clear, we don't intend to, um, for this arbitration to be um, seen you know, to be adversarial in any form. Um, we think it does provide clarity, which ultimately benefits uh, uh, both parties. So that's the process, Dalton, uh, that we've embarked upon. Um, I think we said in our uh, press release that we expect this to take three to five months. Um, and, um, and and once that's once that's run its course, then we'll be able to move forward with the added uh, clarity. The second question, Dalton, I wasn't 100% sure I fully understood. Can you just repeat the question? Uh, sure. But before I go on to the second question, if I can ask a follow-up on what you just said, uh, you know, sure. I think that's the part I'm not understanding. If there is a difference of opinion that's causing you to go to arbitration, what's the memorandum of understanding for? My understanding was that that implies that you guys are on the same page. Well, it, I mean, the memorandum of understanding, if you look at it, what it does, it sets out, um, you know, you could say what we agree upon. So Rio Tinta and Turquoiseau, and what we agree upon is um, that we both want to pursue the reprofiling of the existing debt. And we both agree that we want to seek to raise an additional uh, 500 million debt. We then also say in the Memorandum of Understanding that above and beyond that, uh, TRQ would like to uh, explore other options and Luke covered them because we believe ultimately that we would like to maximize the level of debt um, at the asset level, right? Um, and um, now I come back to my previous answer a bit, Dalton. So it's become really clear to us over the over the uh, remaining or, or recently as part of these discussions that um, you know our approach uh, and the process uh, to um, to get us there that we have different different views different uh, interpretations uh, and because of that we felt uh, going to arbitration is the most helpful thing to do because it is a you know, a relatively quick process. It is a, uh, you know, a process that is governed by quite strict confidentiality proceedings, and it allows us to do this in what we believe the least, you know, adversarial matter, because clearly we want to continue to work together with Rio Tinto going forward. Um, but to get that clarity, we believe is important. It's important for us um, and for all parties to be able to then ultimately move forward with our financing plan that, that we would like to put in place. Got it, okay. And then, my, so my second question, um, just to clarify, my understanding is that under Rio's guarantees on 
you know, all of the financing to date. There are conditions under which it can call an event of default if it becomes clear that, you know, certain payments, whether it be the capital to finish the project or, you know, make the lender, the, the project financing payments unlikely. And, and just remind me under what conditions they can call a notice of default. Yeah, I don't think, uh, Dalton, I would say, can I, so this is quite complex. Can I suggest, so there's lots of, of so a event, event of default is, is obviously something normally would be called by the lenders, right? That, I know that's not what you mean. Um, look, there's a series of agreements out there, right, Dalton. I mean, I'd suggest almost we take it offline because there's lots of them. It starts off with the 2006 private placement agreement. It goes on to, you know, the 2010 heads of agreement, the 2012 memorandum of agreement, uh, all the way up to the 2015 financial support agreement. They're quite complicated. They're quite complicated. And, of course, the MOU as well. Um, so, you know, if you want to have a detailed discussion, we can do that. But they're quite complex. They're all available in the public domain, so people can take a look at that. Um, and... Um, you know, they're quite complicated, and in part, um, that is maybe what explains why arbitration here is helpful, because we think that some clarity uh, is required to help to help govern that process. Okay, yeah, no problem. And then maybe just one last one from me. Um, with regards to the government, it sounds like your you know your teams engage with them in terms of uh, working through some of the uh, the differences and. Uh, trying to come up with you know, new terms, I guess. What form are those discussions taking? How far advanced are they? And who do you have from TRQ representing um, your negotiating yep. team? Sure. Thanks, Dalton. So I think what you're probably referring to is um, really the um, parliamentary working group resolution that was passed in uh, late last year in Parliament. Right. That set yeah. out in, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so... Um, I'll try to answer this as quickly and specifically as I can, Dalton. So we've had plenty of discussions in the first half of the year that ultimately then culminated in the signing of the amended power agreement, right? The, the power source framework agreement um, that was signed in, um, in the summer of this year and that led to um, an agreement going forward, you know, focusing on uh, what was called the SOPP, the state-owned and funded power uh, plant as the new base case, the preferred approach. And, and that's on our website, that agreement, that's there. Then we had a, an election in Mongolia in the summer, um, and um, we've now had since then a, a new government come in. Um, that's not now not so new anymore because we're now in the middle of November. There is dialogue happening, uh, and... Um, conversations have um, have happened. Um, it's not helped, if you like, by the travel restrictions through COVID, because um, we obviously are very limited in our ability to fly into country. But what we have been able to do is to hold discussions remotely, virtually, right, like everyone else. Uh, um, that's what we do. Um, in terms of who is involved from a TIQ perspective, it's a number of us. Um, I'm certainly involved. Uh, Luke tends to be involved, um, other people too, but as we focus on funding, power, uh, some other more strategic matters, um, 
you know, Luke and I probably, I would say, the ones who tend to be the most involved uh, in those discussions. And there's a working group um, that we that we are part of. Uh, obviously, Rio Tinto is part of, and then various um, delegates by by the government, depending on what the work stream is that we're talking about. Does that? I don't want to go into too much. Does that kind of answer your question, Dalton? Yeah, no, that's good context. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question comes from Orest Wackadell at Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. I'm just following up on, on Dalton's questions. Um, I'm a bit confused. Um, earlier, you, you indicated that you expect to submit, uh, I think, streaming potential streaming options to Rio Tinto by year end. But it sounds like the arbitration is not going to be around this funding is not going to be settled until sometime in the new year. So I, I'm just confused about that. Um, and then I was also curious on how the government of Mongolia feels with respect to a stream and whether they're supportive of that type of financing or not. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Luke, are you happy if I maybe take the second question um, in relation to um, the government of Mongolia? And then maybe I'll, I'll ask you to deal with the first one, if, you, if, if you're okay with that. Um, so, Oris, on the second one, how does the government uh, feel about that? Look, I mean, you know, the honest answer is uh, we, we can't speak for the government of Mongolia, right? They will speak for themselves. Um, they're a sovereign, a sovereign country, right? But what I would say is that we are constructively engaged and engaging in a dialogue with them. They are obviously an important shareholder. Uh, they own 34% of Oyotolgoi, and they're an important stakeholder, right? We are operating in their country. And as such, we are very keen to have their active engagement and ultimately their support. We also think that the funding plans that we have in mind, so I now speak for Turquoise Hill, should be attractive to the government of Mongolia or certainly aren't negative for them. But of course, we do need to have the dialogue with um, the government and uh, the government's entity as a shareholder as we progress the work, as Luke is progressing the work, and we need to um, you know, make sure that the government has good visibility, good involvement, because ultimately we want, their, we want their support, right? We can't decide for them, we can't speak for them, but certainly our intention, our approach, our attitude is that we very much and absolutely want to work collaboratively, collaboratively with the government, um, and we think uh, we'll have a good case to to convince them that what we expect to be able to put forward is also something that uh, will will make sense for them uh, so that we can ultimately get their support. Luke, are you happy to to address our first question? Sure, I'll, I, I will definitely do my best and, and thanks for the question. So um, listen, I think I think the sort of key the key sort of point to get across in relation to that first question is that independent of the arbitration, we actually think we can continue to advance our funding discussions and TRQs, sorry, our funding discussions with Rio and 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 TRQ's funding strategy more broadly. So so this this isn't just in respect of streaming, it would be in respect of, of, of GMTN and other things as well. Specifically related to the streaming, 
and I suppose I suppose it's also important to say that ultimately we'll put you know we're doing the work um, to, to to get ready to put proposals forward for Rio's consideration and and ultimately obviously we'll put those um, proposals in front of Rio at 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 when we feel is the appropriate time but we are at the moment still on track to be able to do that before before the end of the year um, we're doing a lot of work to be able to do that. And the intention before the end of the year is to put, you know, um, proposals in front of Rio for their consideration and to start those discussions with Rio. Um, I don't think there's anything related to the arbitration that I, there isn't anything that I'm aware of that would prevent us from doing that. We do very much think that we can progress these other discussions with Rio sort of in parallel with what, what needs to be done um, from the perspective of the, of the arbitration arbitration so so hopefully that's that that's helpful and provides a bit of additional context there okay thank you and then just as a follow-up um your definitive i guess the ot definitive estimate is due shortly here is there any reason to think that it's going to be any different than the technical report that came out a few months ago Thanks, Orest. Um, Joanne, is that something you are happy to uh, to address? Yes. Uh, sorry, Orest, could you just say a little bit more? I just want to make sure I get the answer sure. properly. My yeah, sure. I mean, there's um, lots of disclosure how the definitive cost and schedule estimate for phase two will be released before the end of the year. Um, and my question was, is there any reason to believe or to think that this is going to be different or materially different than the technical report on OT that was put out only a few months ago, or is this basically just a, a copy of the same report? Right, uh, and it's a great question because they are they are updates relatively close together. Um, it, you know, we're still uh, going through our assurance process uh, on this work uh, as 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 it's shared uh, with us and we, we go through the results. Um, we're not seeing material differences, but of course this report does uh, include the effects of COVID uh, that are known to date. Uh, and so there are some, there are some differences, um, but uh, yes, yeah, so we're not necessarily seeing any uh, major changes at this stage, but I do reiterate that we're still going through our assurance uh, process at our end. Okay. But haven't you already disclosed that the, there's no impact to the capital and schedule from COVID to date? Uh, not necessarily. We have two sets of um, results, you know, we've got the technical report that was released and it uh, did not include the impacts of COVID. Uh, the, um, the definitive estimate does, um, does include uh, the impacts uh, such as we understand them uh, to date. Uh, and uh, just because the, the headline is, is very similar doesn't necessarily mean that within the details that those um, that the impact of COVID um, uh, has had some impact, if you like. Um, and there's certainly been work to try and mitigate those impacts, um, but nonetheless, um, they have they have been included in this. And you know we're still reviewing um, what 
uh, the detail is within this estimate. Okay, thank you. Or can I just, yeah, I mean, just to say slightly differently, maybe that the, e, the definitive estimate is around the corner, right? Um, but we are close to it, and so we've given really preliminary indications as to where we think we are. So there's a little bit of a health warning around that, but at the same time, we're obviously quite well advanced too, and that's why we felt it was appropriate and important to give the market some visibility where we are, even though, as Joanne said earlier, we have not completed and finished the full governance process yet. But certainly we have given the market preliminary indications as to where we, at the moment, see will come out. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, should you have any questions, please press star 1. Next question comes from Craig Hutchison at TD. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, guys. Um, a follow-up question on the arbitration process. When you exit the arbitration, do you expect to have clarity? Is it like a binary outcome, like all equity, zero equity, or is there a possible possibility of a, a negotiated settlement, something in between in terms of uh, your funding shortfall? Yeah, thanks, Craig. So what I would say is um, the uh, – let me sort of back up maybe for a second here. So we've gone to arbitration uh, under a set of agreements. Under those set of agreements, um, arbitration is, a, is the mechanism uh, that governs um, to resolve the issue. Um, it is – a binding process, a binding outcome at the end of the day. Um, uh, I think we said before it is expected to take between you know three to four, three to five months, something on those lines. Um, that doesn't mean that, of course, you know we 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 could you know never get to that stage if we were to uh, to agree anything beforehand, but the process as envisaged is that we go to arbitration, it takes about three to five months, and ultimately the result uh, will be binding on, on both parties. But is there a possibility that it's immediated, like you, know, you guys come to some kind of resolution in the middle? Is that a possibility? Well, I think that's always possible, Craig, right? If, um, um, that, that's always possible, right? Um, so, but I, I can't predict that or, uh, or, or, or determine necessarily what might happen. All I can say at the moment is if the process runs as envisaged, um, this is what it would be, three to five months and a binding result to give us, okay. to give us ultimate uh, clarity. It's just a question on, on hedges. Are, are you guys contemplating hedges over the next couple of years? Sure, thanks. I might ask Luke uh, to comment on that. Luke, you're happy to take that one? Yeah, that sounds like one for me. I'll, no problem. Uh, thanks, Craig, for the question. So, so listen, we, we have had a lot of encouragement from, from you guys, from our shareholders around hedging. And I do want to I do want to say to all of you that we are actively looking at it. We're not quite, you know, at a position where we can commit to anything at this time, but the work is being done to see if hedging is something that's in the best interest of the company. And and you know we we would hope in in you know the near future uh, 
you know, possibly even, you know, as, as part of our, you know, Sooner rather than later, we would we would hope to be able to provide a bit more clarity there. But I can obviously say at the moment that we're we're interested in it. We're active actively looking at it, and it is something that 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 we might be able to do. Are there any restrictions in terms of hedging, vis-a-vis a real? So um, there are. I mean, I. I don't want to comment specifically on 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 Rio's view on hedging. Obviously, the broader the broader agreements that sort of govern the relationship between TRQ and Rio, um, you know, put limitations generally. Um, but but you know, we are looking at options that we believe can be executed, even with the sort of um, take, taking in, you know, the, the, the broader context into consideration, we are still looking at options that we think could be executed, um, and, and, and that's the stuff that we're actively looking at at the moment. Like purchasing puts. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Craig. I'm not quite at. I I know you'd probably want me to be very specific here, but I'm not quite at the stage yet where I can be that specific. But 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 we, I mean, we do have, um, you know, good support. We are looking at this. We've looked at a variety of different options, and including the ones that 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 you just mentioned. Um, and we've we've tried to narrow it down to ones that we think, from a TRQ perspective, could be. Um, executed and 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 we're just doing the work now to to verify that's the case, the source endorsements that kind of stuff. Okay, makes sense. And maybe just one last question for me. Uh, in terms of the guidance next year, um, it looks like it's a little bit lighter than what the technical report is is saying for for gold and, and copper production. Is your guidance based solely on the open pit, or are you including some of the development or uh, next year in that guidance. So, um, are you talking about our? I don't think we've issued guidance for 2021 yet. Are you talking about our 2021 gold outlook? Correct. Yeah. So that's the 500 to 550,000 ounces. Yes. Yeah. So I, that will, um, and obviously there is still some work that we we need to do to firm up the guidance, not just for gold, but for um, all of the different areas where we issue guidance. Um, we, there's still a bit of work that we need to, to do to firm all of that up, and that's something that we we tend to kind of do in December and January timeframe. Historically, that's that's usually about when we do it. Um, the the outlook that we've got at the moment, the 500 to 550, um, would would include. I mean, we wouldn't be just looking at, at at open pit. We would be we would be taking into consideration anything we might be able to get out of the underground in 2021 as well. Um, but it is just it is just an outlook at this stage, and we are doing the work to firm that up so that we can issue guidance in the next couple months. Okay, thanks, guys. Thank you. There are no further questions. You may proceed. Thank you, operator. Um, so let me just briefly summarize maybe what um, um, 
I think we've been able to tell you this uh, this morning. Um, you've seen this quarter another strong operational and safety performance from uh, the team at Oyotolgoy. I think you've heard from us uh, that there's good progress towards the delivery of the definitive estimate later this year, and we've um, we've highlighted that the current preliminary indications are that first sustainable production is expected to come in at the lower end of the range, i.e. October 2022 as a base case, with CapEx remaining within the range with 6.8 billion as a base case. Um, we will need to monitor and assess any potential impact of um, the national lockdown that we are seeing at the moment in Mongolia and that was just extended over the weekend until the 1st of December. Um, we are progressing, as Luke highlighted, the work on a range of non-equity funding options and we expect to have more visibility such that we can have something to update um, you on before the end of the year. Um, of course, there's other work uh, that needs to be done in a range of other areas with our stakeholders, including, of course, Rio Tinto, as well as the government of Mongolia. That is happening, and we will update the markets on any developments in this regard. And in the meantime, what remains uh, for me to say is extending our best wishes to all of you. Stay safe, and do please remain vigilant, as we've just seen how uh, COVID remains with us for the foreseeable future. So with that, let me thank you for uh, having joined us on this morning's call, and we'll close up the call with this. Thank you very much, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating, and we ask that you please disconnect your lines. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast.